Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. We turn another mark that's important for us to know. One of the reasons they reject the gospel, apart from the fact that they wanted to reclassify themselves not as sinners, <laughs> they wanted to reclassify themselves as being something else, they had no, I call it a category for grace. There was no grace. Verse 17, they did not understand grace. For it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Brother Hirth, what do you mean? That seems kind of out of nowhere, huh? Just doesn't seem like how is it that all of these things fit? What's the connection? This might seem to have no connection with the preceding statements, but it's very, very tightly connected. You see, Jesus had offended them in that he had embraced sinners in chapter 15. He had gone to the tax collectors. He had gone to the riffraff. He had gone to those that the Pharisees and the scribes said they are sinners, and he eats with them. This was, in their mind, an outrage, absolute outrage. It was against all of their spiritual sensibilities, their self-styled holiness, that Jesus would hang around with such scum, such sinners, that he would hang around with those people. And by the way, the sinners were a generic category that the Pharisees thought that these people aren't even allowed or worthy to come into the synagogues. Don't let them in. They're sinners. And all of the people who didn't eat with them or speak with them or even come close to them were the Pharisees. They didn't want to have any part. As I pointed out, a Pharisee wouldn't go near one of these people even to teach them the law that how they were being defiled is what they thought. So here Jesus is embracing people. He's embracing everyone, and he tells them the story in Luke 15 about a father who is described as God. We see that story of God in the prodigal son who runs through the town. He throws his arms around his wretched son, that rotten, vile, sinning son, and he's heaped all of the goodness and blessings that he can. He puts a new robe, and he puts rings, he puts sandals on him, and he embraces a vile, sinful son who's wasted his own substance with prostitutes. He's lived with Gentiles. He's eaten with pigs. He's reached the lowest point in the imagination and the loving father, the loving father throws his arms around him. You see, to the Pharisees, that was detestable. And everything that Jesus is telling them is detestable. How could God do that? They have no category for grace. They have no kind of understanding for forgiveness. That kind of grace is, is not seen in their world. They believe that Jesus is preaching forgiveness and grace and assaulting the law. They, like religionists tend to be, are legalist. They're going to earn their way. They've got to earn their way. All systems of human achievement, they've got to earn their way by obeying some of the standards, some of the laws, depending on the, what religion they became more sophisticated in, in Judaism. As Judaism grew, they became more and more sophisticated. They changed it 
Today they have five different books of all of the different writings. That's how sophisticated it's all become. Here comes Jesus with all of his grace. <laughs> Here comes Jesus loving people. Here comes Jesus talking about God embracing a sinner. They're outraged. They can't believe it. They want to attack Jesus on holiness and attack on his purity and attack on his virtue. And they are highly offended that they are convinced that this very attack is the reason they believed he is satanic. So when they accuse him of doing what he does, he's, they say he's doing it by the power of Satan. It's because he associates with people they connect under Satan's domain. They connect all these people as being, well, they're part of Satan. They saw Jesus as a lawbreaker, a law violator, that they accused him of repeatedly hanging around sinners, drunkards, prostitutes. Jesus knows this, and he wants to affirm in them his view of the law, and what is his view of the law? The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. Now remember, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gave them the law. He, he said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, he's raised the standard. You have heard, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you hate... And he goes on and he raises the standard in every case. Why? Because he was, number one, a true interpreter of the law. Number two, he was faithful to that law. And that's what he means in verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand me, folks. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. That's kind of the idea of what he's saying here. This is in contrast of the massive sense to the minute sense. The little passing, the little letters. And we could get into all of the little Hebrew letters or the little Greek letters. There are some very minute ones. As a matter of fact, you will find that there was a time, and in our King James Bible, if you look at, at 2 Chronicles 22, it talks about Ahazariah, that he became king. 2 Chronicles 22 says he was 42. In 2 Kings, it says he was 22. Why? Because a scribe left off a, just a little line. And it made it look like he was 42 when he was 22 when he takes that. No problem. We have old versions. We have the ancient, ancient copies. And we know that that was just a scribal error that somebody left off a little line. And it changed what appeared to be 20 years difference. The scripture isn't in violation. It reads almost the same in 2 Chronicles and in 2 Kings. Why? Because some scribe left off a little line. Jesus says that's not going to matter in the scope of things. And if you read NIV, New American Standard, or anything, you're, you're not going to find that. That's just something King James translators missed when they were translating. It's not an error in the Bible. I want you to know that. The Bible has no errors in its original sense, in its original writings. So we say all of that to know the Bible says in the Old Testament, heaven and earth is going to pass away. All of these things are going to pass away. The book of Revelation talks about it. Second Peter talks about it. Peter says that the elements will burn, will melt with a fervent heat. And in their place, what happens is a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal state. 
But this is not the point of what the Lord's saying here. It's the contrast of human perspectives. It's easier, he's saying, for the universe, the entire whole universe, to go out of existence. When he says heavens, it's not just our universe, it's all of the universes. We're seeing a greater number. We're able to see it farther out into space than we'd ever seen before. And all of that is going to be melted away. That's what Jesus said. The great expanse, then for the minuscule law, a little dropping of a letter, a little dropping of a line. Jesus says, it's, that's not going to happen. God is going to preserve it. God is going to keep it. By the way, that's, that's a good illustration that our word is inspired. We use the term, preachers, we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the scripture. What does that mean? We just believe every word was inspired by God. That's what it means. We use all these big terms to confuse people to say, I believe the Bible. I believe every word of the Bible. And I've heard some preachers say, well, I don't think every word was, was inspired. No, every word was placed there by the Holy Spirit. And it's exactly what he wants to say. You see, these passages are not disjointed. They're not out of place. They're exactly what God through the Holy Spirit intended. And holy men of God wrote as they were inspired by God. There is no error in God's word. If I threw you off by that with just a little pen, that was some scribal error. That wasn't the word of God. So the contrast is extreme from the most massive to the most minuscule. Every little bit, the pages of God's inspired revelation will never be changed. What does that mean? As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away. And there he notes that it will happen until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest stroke, the smallest letter. Some things we need to understand, some things that we can see is that God's word is inspired. It's all there. Letters matter. Sometimes we could see that singular, plural, all of those, but no one letter will ever change until it's finally in its eternal state. It's all completed. It's all accomplished. It's all fulfilled. That's a powerful statement. He's not setting aside anything. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, you will see there are some things that have changed. We're no longer under the laws of the Sabbath. We're no longer under the dietary laws. We're no longer under many of those things, some things that do not change. One is promise, and the other is righteousness. In other words, whatever God promised in the Old Testament will be fulfilled, and whatever God said is righteous is always righteous. God's promises cannot change. God's morality cannot change. The law doesn't change in those two ways. All of the promises are going to be fulfilled. And these were being fulfilled right to that point. They missed John. They did not see who John was. They missed the bridge. Even though the sacrificial ceremonies, the sacrificial system, all of that would fail, all of that would end. The gospel, the promises of God would not fail. The promises of God wouldn't continue on. And then the standards of righteousness reflect God's unchanging nature. That's what he means when he says not one 
jot or tittle, one little crossing of the T, dotting of the I as such. If God said it's going to happen, it's going to happen because God cannot lie. Then if he said it's right or it's wrong, that's going to be the way that it is forever because God cannot change. So prophetic promises are all going to come to fulfillment and the righteous standards of God will never change. And he's aware, and that's what Jesus is affirming. If they really believed in the righteous character, the righteous nature of God being inviolable, then the law of God is, you could not violate it, it's unchanging, they wouldn't be living the way they were. So when it comes to God's moral law, they did not pay attention to what it said. That's what takes us to verse 18. They did not pay attention just because they didn't have a category for grace, they didn't have a category for forgiveness, doesn't mean that they, on the other hand, actually upheld the law, because they didn't. They did not affirm the law and the prophetic elements, or they would have embraced John. They would have embraced the Messiah because he had proven himself. And that's really what he comes down to in verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This seems like, how did we go from the law and the prophets, and John, and these men that are looking to be highly esteemed because they are hypocrites, and they were being pretty careful about how they operated. <laughs> they were just being ignorant. They picked out one of their favorite Old Testament commands to ignore. That's what Jesus is doing. He's picking out something that they had absolutely ignored. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. These were a bunch of adulterers. That's what Jesus is saying. You're saying, you say you hold up this high concept of the law and you're adulterers because divorce was rampant among the Pharisees. Why? About 50 years before Christ, there was a rabbi named Hillel that came up and said, well, if you want to divorce someone, as long as you do the paperwork, you can divorce for any reason. And, and he comes up with a whole list what they were. If your wife spins, she spins around and her knees show, for a woman to show her knees was unthinkable. It was an act of disgrace. For a woman to let her hair down in public, you could divorce her for that. If she burnt the food, put too much salt in the food, you could divorce for any of those reasons. If you found somebody that you thought was better than your wife, you could divorce her. That's what the list of Rabbi Hillel, and that's what these men had gone through. They could divorce. Remember, under the law, if you committed adultery, what was the punishment? Boom! Stoning to death. The punishment in God's word is that you would be stoned for adultery. And yet, what does he say? Whoever divorces wife and marries another commits adultery. They could have all been stoned. They had all broken that law because they had tweaked the word. They had changed it. So that after all, and that's what they knew it. 
Now in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in, her, in his eyes, that is, he doesn't like her anymore because he's found some indecency, some uncleanness in her. That's all it says. He writes her a divorce, a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends it out of her house. She goes out because he doesn't like her anymore. There's something that was vile, something shameful. It wasn't adultery, by the way. Because adultery had the penalty of death. That penalty of adultery was death if you committed that. But now they had changed the law. That's why Jesus says, one jot, one tittle will in no wise pass. But you've changed it. They were complaining to Jesus for meeting with sinners, for publicans, and yet they themselves were sinners. They didn't recognize it. This, by the way, doesn't commend divorce. It doesn't condone divorce. If it happens, well, and it does, of course, she goes out of the house. She'll go out probably to be somebody else's wife because she needed to survive. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies, they cannot take her back. Why? Because this one then has been defiled. She has no grounds. So now, what is this text saying? Saying, don't divorce your wife or you're going to have divorce all over the place. It's going to just be rampant. Whoever marries her is guilty of adultery. It's just recognizing the divorce is going to occur, but he's saying it should not be proliferated because the adulteries were taking over all over the place in Israel and by the Pharisees. Well, we could get in, take a long time and looking at some of those. But now the Pharisees looked at that passage and they considered the passage of Deuteronomy 24 as a permission. They had said that in all of the Rabbi Hillel's list. And by the way, there's a whole lot of blanks. If a woman didn't give you a son, if you find anything that for some reason in your convenient interpretation, you want to divorce her, you can do it as long as you do the paperwork. But Jesus came back and he exposed their attitude toward God. Jesus brought back, he exposed their deception. He exposed their convenient misinterpretation of the scripture. And he's laying it out before them. Now, in light of all of that, didn't Jesus give some exceptions? You might say, well, yes, he did. In Matthew chapter 5, he said they came and they questioned him about that. It is said, that means the rabbinic teaching, the rabbinic teaching, that the whole thing is, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, this was adultery. And then, and he exposes their heart. He says, because of the hardness of your hearts, God allowed that. God allowed that concession. He did not mean that everybody should die. It was a concession. And he repeats it. I say unto you, this is Matthew 5, I say unto you, whoever divorces wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, look, you're accusing me of being a lawbreaker. You're the lawbreakers. You're divorcing your wives all over the place for burning your dinner, for putting too much salt on it because you found somebody you liked better. Jesus is saying, I'm upholding the law. And of course, in the wonderful gospel of Jesus, God forgives all who will come and repent. They didn't understand grace. They did not understand the gospel. 
They did not adhere to the true interpretation of the law. So Jesus is saying that typical false religion, greedy lovers of money, they were in it for the gain. They were antagonists to God's demand. They would not hear God's real truth. They were proudly self-righteous, confident in their own religious works. They were seekers of honor from people. They were corrupt, detestable at heart, rejected the gospel that alone could save them. They were ignorant about grace and God's forgiveness. They were inaccurate and unfaithful in their true understanding and obedience to God's word. And let me just close with saying the conflict has not changed. It's nothing new. It's the same now. It's the word of God and the word of Christ versus false teachers. False teachers are like this in every way. Only the people have changed in their dress and some of the ceremonies, but it's still the same question. False religion does not save. We must be adhering to the truth, and the truth is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need it. You see, Jesus was telling the truth. Jesus was telling the truth about liars, but it's when you tell the truth, being merciful, it's the compassionate thing. It's the loving thing that one can do. Jesus told them that they could repent. Why is he laying this out? Why is this laid out in such a way that they would have an opportunity to examine themselves and accept the grace of God? You see, when we tell people the truth, we can thank God that he moves we can thank God that he is going to work through his Holy Spirit in their lives. Jesus exposed these hypocrites. He said they were lovers of money, lovers of honor. They wanted to justify themselves. Jesus tells them the truth. Thought they were keeping the law and they failed. They failed miserably. They had missed everything that the law and the prophets had said, exposing them to Christ. They had missed grace and forgiveness that they desperately needed. Today, there are people around in our world that desperately need that. They're caught up in false religion, thinking that they'll do it themselves. They'll make it somehow. Now, this passage doesn't end here. Jesus begins to tell the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Here's the transition. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next week, and I think that it will be very profound. I wanted you to see all of this, how Jesus was speaking to these Pharisees, people that were self-righteous, that thought that they looked good, that they acted good, that they were above sinners, when they themselves were sinners. You see, we've got to look at ourselves. Say, Lord, Maybe I've just been trusting in my own thing. Maybe I've been trusting myself. Maybe I've been trusting my own interpretations, trusting in all of those instead of recognizing that it's God who is righteous. It is God who is unchangeable. It is the Lord who saves. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions of a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. The angel upon the tombstone said he is risen just as he said.